You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It's uh, August 12, 2021 at 7.37 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And um, uh, tonight, the topic of conversation is around compassion and compassion practice from the Brahma Viharas. But if you have any questions that you'd like to ask before we begin that part, this is the time to do it. I have a question. Okay. So during the AI training, uh, Miriam, Howard, Eric, they were all saying that even a little bit of mentalizing goes a long way and that resolving trauma is about mentalizing. There's a lot of evidence now that improving mentalizing uh, resolves trauma and also the moves you from the unresolved status. Right. Um, I thought it was, um, I mean, I can see mentalizing as part of it, but they were really saying that um, mentalizing is a big part of it. Um, there's a few aspects of that. One is to uh, to really see what happened clearly, and then also to uh, be able to track when you're moving into that uh, formulation. If we put it into Buddhist terms, when you create conceptual reality out of the uh, ultimate reality data, and, it, and you hit into a, 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 a dissociated or split off part or into the, the trauma memory experience, and you uh, form the present moment in the context of that trauma, if you can mentalize well enough to see that actually, even though you're having that kind of reaction, the present moment isn't that, then uh, you don't tend to fall into the responses that you'd end up uh, generating if you didn't have that capacity to see that. And then the other piece in, in terms of the trauma repair is to understand that there are other um, things that you can do in response to the present moment, which aren't the limited range of uh, trauma responses that you had before. Uh, so in, in repairing the mentalizing, first, uh, you want to be able to establish the present moment is not the past, and then also to develop the capacity to imagine outcomes uh, associated with the present moment, which are different than the outcomes that happened when you uh, had the trauma. Um, can you tell when you're dissociating or tending toward dissociation and not tending that way. Um, that all creates mentalizing. I do also think that um, one of the things that should be followed up on is that the study that Dan did uh, with Metagroup as the control group, the Metagroup people, because they used Vipassana meditation, mentalized at a higher level than uh, than the non-meditators did, but that didn't change the underlying attachment. And Dan's uh, conclusion was that 
the 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 mentalizing training needs to be specifically focused in order to repair that and that a general uh, um, capacity at mentalizing wouldn't necessarily do that so i would also think that um, part of it is uh, um, uh, needs further exploration also, the AAI is a specific instrument, and so the effects of mentalizing in the AAI may also be different than the practicality of life. Good enough? <laughs> no. <laughs> what did you want? It's good enough. Okay. I mean satisfied that was that's what i was going for <laughs> <laughs> what would be more satisfying uh what what did dan say huh what did dan say about how to fine-tune the mentalizing training that it needs to be specifically focused on attachment related issues so uh um mentalizing attachment mind states for instance as opposed to general mind states, um, focused spe specifically on emotional regulation in, in, in relationship to uh, present moment experience so that you're not pulled out of that, uh, that's what he said. Isn't that Vipassana? Um, well, a general, what his his conclusion was that even though the vipassana meditators uh, that were meditating through metagroup scored one to two points higher on the mentalizing scale the underlying attachment system didn't change so that simply uh, advancing mentalizing in itself if it wasn't specifically focused on mentalizing attachment uh, would not change it. That was the conclusion he came to, but that's from one study. So we would need to do another one that was more focused on that with two groups. One that did a general meditation practice to see if their scores went up and one with a focused uh, practice to see if not only did their scores go up, but also the attachment, underlying attachment conditioning improved. Christian? I think you answered my question because I was I was wondering with reference to the mentalizing, whether whether the mentalizing being referred to was like generic mentalizing or mentalizing with respect to the trauma so it sounded like it was mentalizing with respect to the trauma right and then working with the mentalizing structure uh, of you know we use the um peter fonagy anthony bateman model for mentalizing and learning to mentalize uh, according to that map as opposed to just the general vipassana sense Jake? I was wondering if you could talk about, sorry, I lost my picture there. Are you there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about um, 
coherence of mind, coherence of discourse, and tell us about what it is, how, and uh, also what are the contraindications to it, if there are any, in terms of uh, the, you know, not self, the three characteristics. You know, is there a contraindication about uh, could 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 vipassana practice be destabilizing to it? I guess that that's that's my question. Uh, coherence of mind or coherence of transcript from the AI, I mean? I, I didn't, I was reading through the attachment book uh, a couple nights ago, and I came across that an outcome of the of this uh, theory or this practice is that one's coherence of mind and coherence of discourse improves. And I didn't know what that was. I, I hadn't heard about that before, but I just had a general idea of what it might be. And the general sense of how the, uh, you know, the discussion or thinking about uh, the three characteristics could potentially be destabilizing to it. Okay. So co coherence of mind is that you're able to stay in the present moment in the discourse uh, in relationship to the interviewer and respond without getting uh, disoriented or uh, dissociated. Um, Coherence of discourse means that you're telling a, a narrative that's uh, truthful, that's complete and concise, and that you don't wander off or uh, contradict yourself or uh, drop parts out. Okay. Um, um, I, I, I guess the second part of my question I wanted to tag on in that is that, you know, this whole kind of project of working towards liberation from time and space and, you know, total transcendence right. from mind and matter. I mean, in a sense, you know, at some point it just came across to me. I thought, you know what, like, this sounds really crazy making, like, this sounds really insane. <laughs> you know, like, what, what am I talking about? Like, what, what are we going on about here? We're, we're trying to transcend time and space and have ultimate insight into liberation. Like in terms of just the general, kind of theory of mind for people like is this i mean how do we is this kind of crazy making in a sense how do we relate that to normal discourse so theory of mind is something else right uh, so i was tracking you but i was also tracking uh, stas and evan's response to you at the same okay, time I so i was Huh? I can't see anyone. Sorry. Okay. So that's two levels of theory of mind outward, right? Um, um, so I'm watching Christian, watch you and me. I'm watching Stas. Um, everybody's reacting to everybody else. And if you can track that well enough, so Stas. Uh, uh, smiled. Uh, Christian isn't watching. Evan smiled. You're not seeing any of this happen because it's not all on the screen. Lucia's there, but Lucia's really good at keeping her face still, so it's hard to to read what's going on. Um, uh, that that's theory of mind, right? And human beings typically can get out like six levels if you're really focused and really good at it. So you could track. If you could see the pictures, 
what Evan thinks about, what Lucia is thinking about, what Stas is thinking about, what Christian is thinking in reaction to you, right? right. It's just a way of, of understanding um, the nature of things. When I think about being in that timeless space where there's no real uh, duality sense of self happening, um, there's no discourse like this there. Mm -hmm. So this is not being in that space and trying to understand the nature of that space. What I find is in, in inhabiting that space and inhabiting it over a period of time, it creates an, uh, I know it's all, all of these, it's an unknowable knowing about uh, the, the universality of everything. That is to say, I feel really good if I'm in myself again. It feels very peaceful, but I couldn't explain to you why that would be or what caused it. I could tell you the practice that I was doing and I could tell you the, uh, that I entered the, the, that state of just knowing awareness without any self-activity. Um, mm -hmm. Shinzen used to say long ago that, that um, the self is never going to catch up with this experience, so that there, there's no need to really figure out how to explain it to the mm -hmm. self. Any help at all in, in that? No, definitely. Sure. Sure. Okay. I mean, uh, if I'm distressed and I can find uh, some time to meditate and I can go into that state, which I know how to do just by doing a series of uh, techniques that build on each other, then I and I arrive there, then it's it's really, I mean, I could explain what there's, a visual experience of, of, of movement and not much else. Uh, mm. and, uh, and then I can stay there for a period of time and then come out of it. And then there's this sense of well-being that's profound. But, but I couldn't explain it to the self in a way that would make any sense. You're doing a dopey meditation technique and you have this great sense of well-being. What the hell is that? Right, it's the the self experience. The self experience. No, come, mm -hmm. go ahead. I was just going to say that totally makes sense. That sounds totally normal. I guess the thing is, if you get really kind of into the deep end of Buddhist theory, or you're reading the Buddha's words consistently, I find that you know the discourse of the Buddha, as found in the suttas, it's really it's not like the discourse that we have in our daily lives or the way that we think about or talk about meditation in a in a way that you know you just feel really peaceful and good and that's just sabai sabai and that's all there right. is to it so i think i'm just saying there's this, this there's this kind of difference you know if you read the buddha's words it can be in a sense kind of dysregulating and it, it sets a coherence of discourse that's like not on the page with whatever our normal life is. So I guess right. that's what I was bringing up. Uh, um, you know, I have, so for instance, I'm used to sitting with sort of Mahasi style, bare bones, Theravada practice, where everything is very concrete and basic. And then I go sit with the Tibetans and it all sounds like 
a, a string of adjectives that shouldn't be together. It's just mm. flowery and airy and fantastic. And I don't believe any of it. Myself is th sitting there going, this is nonsense. Um, but that why doesn't... didn't why didn't you do your young schema questionnaire? Why didn't you pull out your young schema questionnaire at that point? <laughs> this is complete bullshit. I hate these people. Is what myself is saying. Uh, but then I do the practices, and I come out of the other end of the practices with this sense of of. Uh, um, uh peacefulness and uh, i when i uh, initially started i said that I, it was quite blissful and then and and dan said you're too much in the body stop that it's not supposed to be blissful uh um and so you know you you adapt um in terms of the instructions what i've discovered of course is it doesn't matter whether my self-experience is comfortable with it it doesn't matter whether my self-experience believes it. it doesn't matter whether my self-experience likes it it is true or it isn't based on practice and and the experience that comes from practice um, i you know i i find a lot of the uh the monk speak uh too monkish if if i could say uh -huh. that um, oh yeah sure it's too emphatic it's too linear it doesn't match my experience very well uh -huh. um, right and i so, think that's what we pick up on from that culture and from reading the suttas uh, as well right i and guess so it's I, not so applicable and in another sense like you know your practice in the in the mahasi tradition also isn't as a it's it's a different theory and practice than Dan's theory and practice. So we're just talking right. about different sort of things now. Well, well, talking about um, uh, the the cognitive limited self experience of understanding versus the the unfixated non dual way of understanding things. Um, I I kind of like the the latter, yeah, as a way of trying to understand what's actually happening. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh -huh. Christian. Oh, I was just going to attempt a little theory of mind on Jake. Uh, <laughs> I it, I was kind of wondering if 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 Jake, if you were getting it there's this kind of seeming contradiction between like doing the attachment stuff at the same time that you're kind of exploring the no self and all that. It's like, it's like if you're right. writing on a blackboard with one hand and then erasing it with the other hand. So you kind of, kind of, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's that aspect about uh, wondering how these pieces fit together. Like for instance, I've heard, you know, Dan basically just says, that if you're doing this practice of awareness, then you don't need to do any other practices. You don't need to do all of this sort of uh, attachment repair stuff. And but I don't, in my experience, I I don't I don't find that to be true. I find that the doing learning about the attachment theory work is very rewarding, and the just going into states of awareness is it can be sort of uh, like dissociating for me or dysregulating for me. I think that Dan also says that you should do the attachment work first if you have attachment issues. 
And then mm. once you've resolved the attachment issues, go into the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I heard it. I mean, that's the way I, I, I thought about it as well. But then I just heard him recently say, just scrap it all and just go for the awareness and nothing else. <laughs> and everything will just resolve. <laughs> oh, no. <clears throat> right? A few people said that. Hmm. Oh, no. That doesn't make sense. Well, I had this dialogue with Shinzen for, I don't know, 15 years, and he, he used to say that. But then uh, for a lot of people, the, the difficulties that come from uh, the, the attachment disturbances prevented them from practicing consistently or deeply enough in, to have the insights that were necessary. And so that he uh, tempered himself uh, on that subject and said that maybe there are some things that need to happen first. Um, I don't necessarily see the harm in, in, in pursuing them uh, at the same time. And then once yeah. you complete the attachment work, leaving that behind as you move on, or that, pra that you could practice in a way that the skills that you were developing in working through the attachment material were then completely applicable to the uh, enlightenment pursuit yeah. so that there's no actual time wasted. It's just a different initial focus yeah, that and makes in, sense to me yeah. and in tibetan practice certainly there are preliminary practices like a hundred thousand prostrations and so forth that uh, mm -hmm. that you might that might also take you through that experience is that how you um, get attachment repair yeah a hundred thousand <laughs> prostrations <laughs> When I went well, I to think, a, hmm? oh, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the theory would be that one would, therefore, it would be a practice of attachment repair with a guru. So they're right. doing a hundred thousand prostrations. It would be actually developing an attachment relationship with a guru, and they place a lot of emphasis on that. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, <clears throat> I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. No. George, I always prostrate myself to the ideal parent figures. Do you? <laughs> yeah. How else are you going to get oh. secure? So I remember what I was going to say. When I went to Myanmar looking for a, a, a retreat center that would take a meta, the meta group, group of people that like to go practice, um, they, uh, asked me if I would go talk to a monk who was learning English. And so I went and uh, sat with a monk uh, in a kuti in the woods. And he had been at the monastery for five and a half years. And he had been doing jhana practice for five and a half years and had not yet begun the insight practice because uh, his teacher wasn't satisfied with the quality of the jhana states that he was able to get into. Mm -hmm. um, it's a whole different dimension of time than than something that we in the West would be willing to uh, do, I think. Uh, in our culture, because of the nature of, the, uh, particularly in, in the U.S., where we're so goal-oriented and, and like to go so fast, uh, uh, the way that they began to teach um, insight meditation or Vipassana was simply to jump into the Vipassana techniques and to develop the, the basic skills that you needed 
along the way. I mean, I think that that happened mainly because people uh, in the West, in order to get introduced to these practices, it needed to discover them in a retreat setting. But that as meditation centers proliferated and, and uh, the, the uh, um, uh, teaching meditation became much more widely distributed with much less training, the, uh, uh, the, that process of, uh, we would call that dry Vipassana, so Vipassana with no concentration training, um, actually doesn't work as well for people who don't do retreats. I know that when I started to teach uh, at Against the Stream, uh, even the the most basic Shinzen techniques, which I, I don't consider that difficult to do, was beyond the capacity of most of the people to do, because they couldn't concentrate long enough to to create the discernment between the different uh, sense experiences. And so what has come up in, in its place is a kind of narrative meditation where the, the guidances are every couple of minutes and they're telling you what to do. And so uh, I would think of it more as a contemplation. And so when I was uh, just beginning that, so 15 years ago or something, um, most people actually were in doing what I would call contemplation rather than meditating because they didn't have the basics to be able to do meditation. So it's always this division between people who go on retreat and then because they're in a retreat setting are, and practice enough, develop concentration in people who don't. And um, I don't know that that contemplation is going to lead to what uh, we were talking about earlier in terms of those uh, those uh, capacities of seeing things the way that they are. And so then you're in that place of the discourse uh, and the suttas and and an intellectual uh, understanding. Um, my understanding of the suttas is that there are seven um, paths to enlightenment, but only one of those paths is meditation. And so how then would you come into a place of uh, enlightenment that didn't include Meditation is one of the the vehicles to get there. Could you? No, you do have it? to give a reference. You have to give a reference for the sutta there, George. You got to check up on you what you're talking about with that. Oh, um, I don't know the answer to that. <clears throat> yeah, that's the thing you find you find a lot is you find uh, Buddhist teachings, Buddhist teachers saying like, "Look, this is this is what the Buddha said. This is from the suttas." Then there's no reference. It's just kind of like hearsay sort of thing. And so right. people that are into reading the suttas feel really kind of aggravated by that. So which like, one is it? Well, I don't think it's this or that, but I'm just pointing right. that out. That it's, it's a point of grievance for people that take the suttas really seriously is if they get, you know, even slightly misrepresented. It can right. be a, point, a, a thing that people get upset about. True. Yeah. So it's something, you know, Buddhist teachers in the West, like you, you know, look, I'm looking out for you. And I'm not saying you do this. I'm not saying you do this, no. but I'm just saying you have to be cognizant of that. Uh, yeah, I am aware of that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I, 
and I don't have a, a memory that's good for that. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard. I, I can remember reading it. I just can't remember the source of it. Yeah. Um, so sorry, what do we do? Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> stop interrupting you, I guess. That's what I'm going to do for now. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, the, uh, you know, uh, Shinzen was my main teacher for years, and he teaches a kind of American style Buddhism, which is a mashup of the three different lineages. He calls it um, mindfulness meditation, and it's secularized so that the concepts are taught without the, the references, uh, uh, and, it, and it's a whole way of discourse that happens here. Um, so, um, how do you organize your practice, I guess, is one way. The topic that I, I had intended to talk about tonight, and we'll just do the meditation uh, if we don't get too far into it, is, is the second of the Brahma Vihara's uh, Karuna or Compassion. Um, the way that I like to teach meditation is to, to teach basic concentration based on breath and then move into the intentional development of positive or the capacity for positive states in association with uh, uh, the capacity to concentrate so that when you go into the Vipassana side and you explore uh, the nature of reality, if the experiences that you have there are uh, dysregulating or destabilizing, that you have the positive states that you can withdraw into uh, and uh, uh, come back into a place of balance. Um, in the way that I understand the Brahma Viharas, uh, the um, Meta practice or loving kindness practice, sympathetic joy, mudita, or equanimity, these are all sympathetic in the sense that they don't require uh, an empathetic uh, connection. But compassion is really this uh, idea of holding space for an empathetic connection with someone else. So there's some understanding about the capacity for empathy, there's some understanding about the nature of the emotional experience uh, in the body. That, that are uh, prerequisites for being able to come into a place of compassion that is in, uh, strictly uh, cognitive or the, uh, the near enemy of that, which is a, a sympathetic response. When we do the formal practice, of course, we're not engaged in the activity uh, of empathy with someone else, but we're uh, generating the willingness to do that. The mind does have a tendency to recoil from painful experiences. And often when somebody comes at you who's suffering and you have the experience of that suffering, uh, the mind uh, without uh, some training in compassion tends to re recoil and withdraw from the experience of that, which people can tell. Uh, they can tell when you engage them empathetically, they can tell when you disengage. And uh, many people can experience the 
disengagement, uh, the withdrawing from their suffering experience as rejecting. And so that even if you initially withdraw and then come back to hold the space, there's still that abruption of or that experience of rejection that can inhibit that process. So I tend to think of uh, compassion practice as the training of the mind to be willing to hold the suffering space of other people uh, and to do it uh, enough that it becomes an automatic response rather than uh, something that you have to think to do or remember to do so that when you're initially experiencing somebody's intense suffering the uh, uh, impulse is then to open to the experience of it and attempt to regulate or help to regulate the experience i also like to teach it as a jhana practice so that we come into a high concentration state on that mind state so it also furthers that capacity for concentration that's useful in the sense that uh, if you can come uh, into a high concentration state on a positive experience like that then you can use it uh, to help regulate and stabilize your own experience one of the things about compassion that's particularly important is that you're able to hold intense experiences uh, from somebody else and so if your capacity to regulate your own emotional experience is not uh, well developed it will limit your effectiveness in helping other people regulate their experience so we want to develop a really uh, robust capacity to regulate not only our own emotions, but that when we allow an empathetic connection to somebody else, that we can bring those skills and help regulate somebody else's experience. The cognitive aspect, of course, is why would you do that? Why not just disconnect from people who are um, uh, dysregulated? And this ties into the underlying a discussion of attachment and exploration. In order for you to really go out to the edges of your exploration and risk uh, um, uh, finding meaning, um, you, you also have to risk emotional uh, dysregulation. And uh, if you uh, don't have a great capacity to regulate yourself and you you aren't able to form relationships and surround yourself with people who have a great capacity to do that then um, almost by default you begin to limit the risk that you're willing to take in your exploration so that you don't end up in a dysregulated state that that becomes unbearable if you end up having to limit your exploration uh, uh, too much you can get into a place of despair that life doesn't have enough meaning. And so this idea of compassion is really to come in and support uh, other people's uh, capacity to, ex to explore so that they can find a richness and meaningfulness in life. And then in, in these collaborative relationships, they turn their attention to you and help you support you in your uh, exploration by holding that uh, space it's kind of like the difference between uh, walking on the high wire when you know there's a net there 
and walking on the high wire when you know there isn't a debt there? What are you willing to do uh, differently in, in those scenarios? So, um, the other, there's other aspects of practicing in this way. Understanding what a mind state is is very useful uh, in all of the meditation practice and uh, paying enough attention and exploring it if you don't have already developed the capacity to, to uh, look at mind states and recognize them. And then to develop agency in monitoring and regulating which mind state you allow to play in the mind also is extremely useful. And so when we practice in, in this particular way of using the mind state as the object of meditation, we're training in, in developing that capacity. And the stronger the capacity that, for that, the, the, the more uh, capacity for exploration there's going to be. Is that all making sense? So we're going to work with an easy person. An easy person is who, when you think of them, the mind naturally opens to their suffering experience. Uh, sometimes that's a simpler relationship than our closest people, but uh, explore that. Uh, see if you can find somebody who, uh, in thinking of them, because of the nature of the working model that you've created of them, the mind naturally inclines toward uh, compassion. Uh, <clears throat> um, sometimes it's useful to go through different people that you know so that you can develop a short list of people that are reliable in that way so that when you're out and about and you need to change the mind into a compassionate frame, you just think of one of the easy person, persons and do that. When we were in Myanmar, the, the Sadao, uh in our two-week meta-retreat, meta had us spend three days going through everyone we knew, spending an hour with each person to see who reliably caused the mindset of loving kindness to arise, and then developing a short list so that we had the, the um, immediate capacity to change an afflictive mind state into a beneficial one. Any questions before we begin the practice, Christian? Uh, I, I think you mentioned that there's an order that they do it in Myanmar, but is there like, is there a certain weighting towards like say Meta over the other Brahma Viharas or do they tend to do practice them like eventually kind of equally? Um, you want to develop each skill individually and then use the whole set to navigate being in the world. The order is in the Theravada order is um, metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upekka, which is equanimity. In the Tibetan um, world, they practice equanimity first, then metta, compassion, and sympathetic joy. Does that mean that their conceptions like have them building on each other? Like the Tibetans believe that the others build on equanimity and the Theravadans believe that like it's in a different order or they do they kind of think of them as independent um i mostly it's been described to me as a single group of, a single a collection of skills that are meant to operate in uh, uh support of each other so the the far enemies of 
loving kindness practices anger or hatred the far enemy of compassion is uh, cruelty the far enemy of sympathetic joy is envy or jealousy and the the far enemy of equanimity is craving aversion and unconsciousness and so depending on what the experience of the present moment is you knew you know which of the skills to bring forward okay so go ahead and take your meditation posture So how did that go? Good enough? So go ahead, Jake. What, George, what do you think of when you, when you wish another person to be uh, free from sorrow and free from pain? How do you, how do you think of that? that um, uh, I guess um, to be at peace uh, which might be more meta but uh, to um, be able to meet the difficulties in their life without it overwhelming them and suffering and causing them to suffer to understand that the suffering is impermanent, it will change. Um, and that they can come through that and, and, and uh, overcome the, the um, uh, conditioning that causes them to form a, a, a view of the world that's, that causes them pain. So it's, it's really kind of like offering someone secure attachment. Yes, you could say that. Okay. To be free of that early attachment conditioning would be keeping with that. One of the things, you know, uh, for me is that um, having not done the attachment work, but having practiced meditation for a couple of decades, I was more functional. I was no longer, you know, intermittently homeless. I was no longer uh, completely alone in the world. I could do the things that mattered to me, um, but it wasn't easy. And the anxiety was, was frequently unbearable. And uh, the stops and starts were, you know, as I like to say, my last book, uh, it took me 12 years to complete it. And I've, completed another one in two years um, with no anxiety so doing the attachment work whenever you get to do it changes things so dramatically and life is so much easier having done that um, that i would suggest you do it at any time in your life uh, because of that uh, it, 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 while it is, uh, you have to push hard to get it to change. The the small acts of pushing are not really beyond anyone, I don't think. But the succession of them you have to sort of put together, but the, the, that individual skill you can do, each of the hours of pushing that you need to do, you can manage. 
Um, so that's my my sense of it. I, I, you know, my early life, until my early 50s, I really wasn't very functional. I couldn't really, I could do intermittent bits of things, but I couldn't get anything uh, continuously. I couldn't stabilize anything. Maybe that's the way to put it. And then from my mid-50s into my mid-60s, I was pretty stable. Um, but it's nothing like it is now. So... Christian? Do I have this right? I think I think once you mentioned that when you're speaking with someone or maybe it's some particular um, way of interacting that you actually do either meta or karuna practice like actively while you're talking to them or listening to them talk? Yeah, I think that that's one way to do it. If I have trouble paying attention, I'll do meta for you while you're speaking and then I'll do meta myself before I respond. And you find that that like focuses you rather than being like a distraction or is there a, is there a sort of a, a lightweight way to do it? Um, no, I do find it focusing. I'm intending uh, meta toward you and paying attention to you at the same time that I'm doing it. Um, but and you're then, not. I guess you're not doing the. You're not doing the, repeating the phrases. You're just kind of bringing up the mind state. I guess in that sense, right? No, I can do both. Okay. Just practice. I would call that more of a concentration issue than uh, dividing consciousness so much. Someone else? Lucia? Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm still in the process of trying to make the mind state come up. And so I'm wondering, I, I don't understand how it is that without any visual images, bringing up visual images, I'm thinking of the other person while saying the phrases. Like, unless I can conjure an image of the person, you're not in my, you, in my are you, Right. Are you a pretty strong visual thinker? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. I think it's totally fine to hold the image of the person if you need to. Um, but don't make the image of the person the object of meditation. Make the view of compassion the object of meditation. So, okay, so, um, sorry. No, go ahead. So if I'm not a visual person, so, so you or, or anybody who's experienced in this, how do you know that you're directing the compassion toward that person if you're only repeating the phrases and just holding the mind state? I don't know if my question is clear enough, but... Right. I guess so I'm struggling with... The, the uh, answer is metaphysical. It knows and radiates out there. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So the, the, like... self, the self is trying to understand this. 
And it's better to tell the self that you can't understand this, so don't work so hard at trying to understand it. There's a whole range of experience that the self doesn't really grab onto very well. Yeah, no, I get that. It's more of a technical question. Right. Um, because I think that when I bring up the images, I'm just, it's not quite compassion because I get very sad and almost teary and I bring up images of them suffering. And so I'm thinking maybe the images is not a good idea. But then if I don't have the images, I don't get the sense that I'm actually giving compassion to this person. So that's why I was asking. Right. So hold a neutral image of the person, not an image of them suffering, so that you don't have an emotional reaction to the experience of that. The neutral person. You're making the intention. It's enough to make the intention to the person. You don't have to do more than that. In thinking of them, uh, is does the mind hold the view that you're willing to be with their suffering experience? Um, but what we're really looking for is is um, a mind that's inclined toward the willingness to hold suffering. How do you know that? That's the exploration. That's where it sounds like you're at. So just explore how you would know that. What What is a view? Do you know what a view is? I'd like to say this because I didn't find uh, loving kindness or compassion as a view that I understood very well. The view I understood was anger. And so I did the initial exploration for this practice around exploring how I knew when the mind was angry and how it, I knew it wasn't angry. Um, because I had, uh, I was in a constant state of anger. It was one of the main ways that I regulated my experience by being outraged and angry. So it was constantly available also. Um, and then once I understood, oh, this is how the world looks if I'm angry and this is how the world looks if I'm not angry. I then uh, had the uh, a way of then begin, beginning to understand, well, what other views do I know? What other views can I create? So the question is always, uh, how do you know how the mind is inclined? How do you know, do you know if the mind is neutral or is it inclined in a particular direction? Uh, and so that's the, the initial part of the investigation. Maybe just stay there and see if you can figure that out. It'll be an aha moment, which will open up the whole world that way. In, um, in the development of, of the capacity to track mind states, if you had caregivers that paid attention to you and said, I can't figure out what's going on with you, what's going on with you, you would have had to track your mind states and then you would have had to convert them into a way of explaining them that. Use your words. Have you ever heard a, a, a parent say that? to a child, use your words. That's saying, what's going on with you? Tell me what's going on with you. Explain all of that to me. And that makes you investigate what's happening and then have to be able to verbalize it. But a lot of people don't have the experience of their caregivers doing that incessantly so that they learn to do it and so then they don't track mind states. Uh, some Sometimes uh, you don't have the instruction in tracking of, uh, emotional states in the body, so you can't do that either. It doesn't mean you don't have the capacity to do it. It just means that you haven't undergone the training to be able to do it. And so you do that now, but do it with this easy, light-hearted 
way of being with it. It's not some great deficit. It's not some great failing. It's just a lack of training, which you can do now and succeed at. That's how I would hold it. Um, you know, one of the things about uh, when you use anger as the main way of regulating your emotions, you have a lot of thought processes that generate anger rapidly. And most of them are this excoriating view of myself as a, a, a person. It was very painful to be in that state all the time. And so there's a lot of relief that comes from uh, investigating all of this stuff and moving out of the afflictive into the beneficial strategies for being so that you can actually be uh, in a positive state most of the time. Uh, we all regulate emotions. We Most of us regulate by thinking. And so you really want to track the thought processes that you use and uh, begin to limit the afflictive strategies and develop the beneficial ones. This is a good way to do it. Thank you all for coming. Um, the um, what's coming up on uh, a week from Saturday is the meditation and attachment for relationships. So the main conversation for the day is collaborative relationships. You can come as an individual or as you come, you can come as a couple. If you come as an individual, you'll be paired with other people there to work on the dyads. There's a lot of dyads in that class. And if you come with a a partner, you'll spend the day working uh, on developing collaborative skills with your uh, partner. Um, in September, we're going to start a level two. It's almost full. So if that's something that's interesting to you, I would take a look at it. Um, we're, we're offering it with mentoring and without mentoring. And I, I think the, the with mentoring is maybe there's one spot left um, and then open. If you um, uh, are having resource problems. We don't have a scholarship funds. We're gonna we're gonna start our scholarship drive on Monday. If we come up with scholarships, uh, uh, we'll we'll be able to support you in that way. But we also decided to offer the the level two class without mentoring uh, uh, on a Donna basis. So just reach out to us and let us know what you can do, and we're happy to take you on for that. Um, we have a retreat coming up in December, which will be in person uh, at the Seven Circles Retreat Center in, in the Sierras. I think there's um, 10 or 11 spaces left in that. Thank you for coming. I offer the teaching freely, um, but I do hope that you'll consider making a donation. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. There's a link for making a donation on the website. Everyone, of course, is uh, we're happy to have anybody come practice with us. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. Bye now.